We will go into 27 today. But as sometimes happens as I'm preparing, you know, we have our plans, right? We make plans and then God says, okay, that was cute. Now let's do what I want to do. So we are in Matthew. We will be in 26, but we're going to start. We're going to go back and do what I didn't do the last time, 2069 through 75, but we're going to, and then we'll keep going. But I really feel like God really wanted to set that piece apart. There's a message there that I think really we all need to be reminded of. So um, I was just getting started in the ministry, okay? I'd been an engineer for 10 years, was still in seminary, had the last semester to go, but I had started at a church in North Carolina as a youth pastor. And I was taking my classes, and one of my classes was sermon delivery, um, and I had to preach in a real live church for the first time. And so um, it was a Sunday night, and I, I remember sharing this story there for the first time. So my, my daughters, we had at the time three of our daughters, um, and our middle one at the time was Samantha, was about three years old. And I had been, she did something she shouldn't have done, okay? Set the record, reflect. She did something she shouldn't do. And I, but I jumped all over her, okay? And I was very harsh with her. And we know scripture says, fathers, do not exasperate your kids, do not embitter your kids, do not be harsh with your kids. And I, I, that wasn't the first time, it wasn't the last time, but it was one of those times when God really got a hold of me. So I, I fussed at her, and then I don't know if she walked away, I walked away, but we, we went different directions, and I was a wreck inside already. I knew I'd really not done that well. I had regrets in that moment. I repented. I felt better. But I wasn't done, I found out. God said, no, you need to go to her and apologize. Now, how many parents really feel like they've got to apologize to their three-year-old, right? I mean, they don't remember what happened two seconds ago, much less, right? So some time had passed, not a lot, but that same day, I went to her and I apologized. Well, she had moved on. She was having a good time, and she just said, it's okay, Daddy, and just hugged my neck. I mean, it was just, right? I mean, I still tear up thinking about that moment. It was beautiful. And I didn't have any regrets. Now, I still felt bad about what I had done, and I knew that that was un unnecessary, uncalled for, and uncool, among other things, okay? But I didn't have regrets because I had repented, okay? And the message question we're asking, the title of our message is how to live with no regret, how to live life with no regrets. And the way you do that is you don't regret your sin, you repent of it. So if you're writing anything down today, write, don't regret your sin, repent of your sin. Now we're going to look at two fellas in the New Testament here who give us two different ways of handling the sin. We have Peter and we have Judas. And I want to just walk through their two little stories here and just, I want you to, to kind of see how it plays out in Scripture. We will have to go to some other verses, so if you want to go ahead and find John chapter 21, you can go there, hold a place, and if you want to go to 2 Corinthians 7, we'll go there as well. But we're going to start here first. So let's, re let's review because we're going we're gonna to get back to where we were last week. We're going to flash forward, and we're going to flash back. So hang with me, all right? It'll be fun. It'll be great. 
Okay, so here we are. It's Friday night. It's Friday morning, early in the morning. The sun has come up. It's daytime. I'm sorry. Sorry, that's verse 20. That's chapter 27. It's, 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 Friday, not, it's Friday morning, like 3 a.m., let's say. It's really early in the morning. Peter has been up all night as well as Jesus and the disciples and the, many of the Sanhedrin. And it's at this point that Jesus is being tried. Well, it's actually pre-trial. It's not an official trial because it's illegal to try it in the middle of the night, even though they were doing it. That part we, we looked at last week. So here we have Jesus, uh, Peter's looking on. He's in the courtyard at Caiaphas, the high priest's home, and he's seeing from a distance what's happening. And this is how Matthew writes about that. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. Hold that thought. Go back. Let's flash back to Matthew 26, 20, uh, 30, 31. Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. He's talking to his disciples, minus Judas. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to, into Galilee. 33, Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Okay, so we've seen Peter deny him once in verse 70. Verse 71, then he went out to the gateway. So he's physically moving further away from Jesus, but he's still there at Caiaphas's place. Moved out, he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, so there's other people there too, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath, I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives him away. Clearly he's a, a Galilean Yankee, I guess, from the north, right? So uh, then he began to call down curses and the crowd said, amen, that's right, he's a Yankee. And he swore to them, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. And he swore to them, I don't know the man. Okay? And I don't know if he's cursing, who he's cursing here, but he's calling down curses probably on himself. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus has spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Okay? So there's part one of Peter's story. Is he remorseful? Is he sorrowful? Yes. Is he repentant? Well, let's see. Meanwhile, verse 1 of chapter 27, early in the morning, so we're still, you know, early in the morning, but the sun is coming up. All the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So all those pre-trial things that were happening in the middle of the night, that was their way of getting, they needed to decide, they needed two things to happen. They needed they needed to convince the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish leadership, that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. Mission accomplished. He admitted it. Then they couldn't take that to Rome and get him executed because Rome would be like, that's your own issue. I don't care about your blasphemy. They had to come with a different charge to convince Pontius Pilate that he would be guilty enough for Rome to kill him, which would mean treason. Okay? And so that's what, that's what they're getting ready to do now. They're getting ready to settle the, uh, the issue, okay, we got to do this trial in the daylight, otherwise we're breaking a rule or a law, 
and then we've got to get Rome to get on board, and we've got to go to Pilate, and we've got to get him in. That's what the first two verses here are about. Early in the morning, chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pontius Pilate, over to Pilate the governor. Okay? Now we get to Judas. Because Judas, remember, led the, the, the soldiers, both Roman and Jewish, he led them and a big mob to Garden of Gethsemane where they arrested Jesus. This would have been Thursday night. And we haven't seen him until now, okay, after he did that. When Judas, verse 3, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse, sorrow, and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. And he's exactly right. Watch how these priests reply. What's that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. Side note, it is his responsibility. It was his choice. And we are all equally responsible for our actions, for our sins. We're responsible. We're accountable. And we're guilty because of our sins. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But man, is that not the way a priest is supposed to respond, right? What is a priest's job? A priest goes to God on behalf of people. That's called prayer. And a priest goes to people on behalf of God. That's called evangelism, discipleship, ministry, mission. Okay? And Peter says, and we'll see this not in the near, near future, that he calls Christians, all Christians, a part of a royal priesthood, which makes you and I priests if you're in Christ. I know, that'll be a, a sermon all by itself, won't it? Okay, but back to these terrible examples of priests. Verse 5, so Judas threw the money into the temple and left. This is the words describe a, a, just a violent, he just throws and the coins go everywhere. Then he went and he hanged himself. Now, I'm, in case I, for, I don't want to forget to say this, even though this isn't the ideal place to say it. So he commits suicide. I do not believe that the Bible teaches that suicide means automatic, you're going to hell, okay? I don't believe that. I don't think the Bible teaches that. And so I just want to make that real clear up front, okay? Suicide is a horrible thing, and sometimes it happens for reasons that don't have to do directly with whether you're saved or not, okay? All right, so that said, it, can often, it is probably a lot of times a, a, some of the fruit, an example of the fruit, for you to hate yourself or to be in so much pain that you would want to harm yourself, which goes against the very nature that God created you with, which is self-preservation, among other things, is it really speaks to a mental health, an emotional health, a, a spiritual health that is so bad that it would be probably unusual for a follower of Jesus to do this, but I don't think it's impossible. And so I don't want to ever be... Um, guilty of condemning somebody simply because, not that it's not even my job to do that, right? But just because someone did commit suicide, I don't want to assume, and I don't think we should. That's, that's my opinion. I don't think you can find the verses that prove it in there, but if it's there, that's, you know, that's okay for us to disagree on that. But I just want 
I want there to be peace for those who might wonder about someone they know and love who committed suicide. I don't want you to assume the worst. Okay? Verse 6. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. It's so funny that they're worried about the law all of a sudden because they've been breaking the law left and right up to this point. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it is called the field of blood to this day. Verse 9. Now here's why Matthew points it out because he's doing this over and over and over. It's fulfilled prophecy. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet and Zechariah hundreds of years before was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Okay? So God's still working. God's still over sovereignly working here. That's why it's fulfilled prophecy. That's evidence that God is not being, this is not plan B. This is not God's, uh, he's not going, oh, no, I didn't expect that to happen. There's none of that going on here. He is firmly um, overseeing his providential will unfolding through his son. Okay? And yet, everyone involved along the way somehow is accountable for their own decisions and actions, human responsibility. That tension is throughout Scripture, God's sovereignty, human responsibility. And I can't explain it. I can just point to it. And that's what I'm doing. Okay. Now, let's stop there, and let's go to, um, let's go to John 21. Now, what I want to show you in John 21 is how Peter played out. Peter didn't hang himself. What happened to Peter? So let's, let's look and see what Jesus says to Peter in John 21, starting in verse 15, but let me give you some of the context. So Jesus has, uh, so we're fast-forwarding, we're, we're, we're flashing forward. Jesus has died on the cross. He's buried in the tomb, and he's risen from the grave on Sunday, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then for the next 40 days after he rises, he will, he will interact with his followers, but he'll do it a little unusual. He'll have a full physical body, but it will be a body like you and I really want, okay? It's not just 2.0. It's like 2 infinity point It's amazing. He can go through walls. He can appear and disappear, and he can still eat. I mean, right? I mean, what else do we need, right, to be able to eat and still be able to do those things? And so he's showing up in different places, and he's teaching and, and encouraging the disciples to, to see and remember, I'm alive, okay? That, that cross, that was not the end, okay? That needed to happen. That's why I went and did it, so that you could be forgiven. I took the penalty for your sins so you wouldn't have to. I died for you so you could live for me, okay? So that 40 days, he spends doing that. In the course of those 40 days, this episode in John 21 happens. Peter and the others, they're probably like, I'm not sure what to do, so I'm going to go back and do what I know to do, and that is I'm going to go fishing, right? I mean, not a bad thing to do when you don't know what to do, right? Mikey, you with me? Right? He's there, right? Go fishing. And so he and several of the others go fishing, okay? James, Peter, John, and, and you know, three or four of the others, they go fishing, which means they get in a boat, and they go and they're casting nets. And this is. And then we start to remember some of the uh, interactions they had with Jesus before they were his disciples. And he's like, hey, you caught anything? We've been out all night. There's nothing. Uh, push out and one more time, throw that net out. Okay, we'll humor the, the, the religious rabbi. And they did it and they came up with this boatload so full they, couldn't, they needed two boats to bring it all in, right? So it's kind of like that's happening again. They're out, they're fishing, they haven't caught anything. He's like, well, try the other side of the boat. 153 fish later, I don't know why we know exactly how many, but isn't that cool, the detail? This is not some myth, right? 153 fish later, um, Peter realizes who's there. He, he, he 
he strips and jumps in the water and runs to see Jesus. He doesn't wait for the rest. They, get to the, they all eventually get to the beach. Jesus is cooking fish over the fire. I don't know where he got his fish, but uh, he was ready for them when they got there. And we pick up in verse 15. When they had finished eating, Peter said to Simon Peter, remember Peter, the one who denied him three times? Watch the symmetry here. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. I can't imagine the moment in that moment, the, the emotion in that moment. But we need to try. What is he feeling right there? He's, I'm going to make the case he's repented. He's been remorseful of his sin. He's repented of his sin. But he, here's Jesus again. He's reminded of his sin. Now, this is what you do if somebody forgives you. You leave them with no regrets. Watch this. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Jesus said, feed my lambs. Verse 16. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this is in front of all these other guys. And he answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Third time. Peter was hurt. Now, if Peter is where Judas was, I think Peter's like, I deserve this, bring it. I'm, I so deserve this. But that's not what he, he actually feels hurt. He is hurt because he doesn't want to hurt Jesus anymore. He doesn't want to live in the past where he betrayed him, where he denied him. Do you love me? He, he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter, I think, left with no regrets at that point because he repented of his sin and got right with God. And then I think he had a sense, and now I'm right with my, my brother. Now, I know it's a little unique because Jesus is unique, right? I mean, it's just... But when, when I repented to God, God immediately said, go to your daughter and apologize to her. And it was like he completed what he started. I know I was fully forgiven by God in that moment when I repented to God. And that's, that's what he calls us to, right? David said, against you and you only have I sinned. And yet we know from Scripture that when, when we sin, we're also hurting other people. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been sinned against. And you still feel the pain because you've never been apologized to. They've never accepted responsibility. They've never repented. And some of us know what it's like to, have, to be that person and to withhold forgiveness. But the focus today is on no regrets, which means that we're going to forgive, okay? We're going to forgive because it's good for them. It's good for our relationship with God, so it's good for us, but it's also good for them. It's, it's just good, right? It's just good. It's It's good. Okay, now let's go to, let's talk a little bit about this difference between Judas and Peter, real quick. 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 8. Now he's going to talk about sorrow. Some translations say remorse, remorse, sorrow. He's going to talk about regrets. And um, he's going to give us, he's going to tell us the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Watch this, verse 8. Even if I caused... He, okay, I'm sorry, context. He's writing... A this is a letter that he has written to the Christians in the city of Corinth. 
Okay, that's in the area of modern-day Greece and Macedonia and all that. Okay, so he's writing a letter to Christians there, and this isn't his first letter to them. It's not even his second letter to them. We think maybe third, if not fourth. Nevertheless, here it is. He says to them, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, he's referring to a previous letter, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet, now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. You see it? For you became sorrowful as God intended, and, and so were not harmed in any way by us. In, in other words, we caused you a little sorrow, but in the end, that led to no regrets. Watch this. Godly sorrow brings Verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves, my translation, no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Pretty clear. And, the, and, the, and if you look at Peter and you look at Judas and you kind of see it on display, don't you? See, and this is, this is the challenging part for you and I. Okay, verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. Now, he's getting ready to, he's, he's basically saying, good job, good job, good job. Watch this. He says, what earnestness, he's talking about them, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation against sin, I would assume, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done at every point. You have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. We could probably do a sermon just on the word innocent. There's so many times it's, shop, it's popping up here. But see this for what it is. This is fruit. He's describing what it looks like when we live with no regrets. How do we live a life without regrets? We don't regret our sin. We repent of it. Believing that God forgives. Believing that God has done enough on the cross for us. It's already done. We just need to believe and receive. John's words. Believe and receive. John 1.12. That's it. It doesn't have all these other things you have to do. Believe and receive. Right? That's open that gift on Christmas. It's got the tag with your name on it. Believe and receive. Believe this gift is really is me. It's got my name on the tag. I'm receiving it because it's mine, and I'm going to open that baby, and I'm going to enjoy it. Okay? Even if it's a white elephant gift. Right? Okay, now let's go back. John 15. And this really gets to how. John 15. How do we do this? How do I forgive? How do I repent? How do I do these things I don't want to do? These things I don't feel like doing, right? Like when you, you, there's somebody you know you should forgive and you just don't want to forgive them because I just don't feel like it. Well, you, first of all, you don't live life based on your feelings, okay? They're real. You have to deal with them, but you live by faith, not feelings, okay? That's that message, okay? That's how it, but how do we repent, Okay? And remorse and sorrow. You know, what, what is that about? So we've talked about it before. I'm going to say it again because this word is less and less understood in our culture. Repent means to turn around. You're heading in this direction. You're living life as you think you should live. You're believing lies, and then you sin. God convicts you of that sin, which is a mercy, by the way. And so now, because I'm aware of my sin, I can do something about it. And that is I can turn away from it, or I can keep going down that way. If I keep going down that way and expect different results, that's called, right, we've heard that definition of insanity. 
doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. No, we, he's calling us back. He's over here. And so he wants me to repent. He wants me to do a spiritual about face and, and walk down this way. If you want to think back to Jesus' words about the parable of the broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow way that leads to life, and if you find it, Jesus is always at the end of the trail in the narrow way. Just follow me as I go down this road. Okay? Repentance leaves no regrets. Now, I, I will caveat it with this. I will say um, there's probably some sense of maybe the shadow of regrets in all of our sin. And there's probably some specific ones that really you just can't seem to shake. But what I want you to do is I want you to forgive yourself so much, so well, that you believe, because you believe God forgave you, that you don't really have to live there in that regret. Okay? If you're reminded of it, just use it as an opportunity to remember what God's grace and mercy is like. It's, I think that's good. I think that's probably a good thing. But living there and letting that control you, unhealthy. And you're really you're not acting as the person God is creating you to become through that process of sin, but then repenting and believing again afresh. Okay? So how do we do this? We need God to do it through us. We will not choose to do this on our own, and we certainly won't be able to follow through. We need God to do it. Well, how does that work? So Jesus gives us a, a metaphor in John 15 to help us picture kind of how this works. Okay? So let me read John 15 and, uh, and point out some of these verses. Jesus is, this is, okay, flashback. We're now at Thursday night again, okay? The night before he's, the night he's betrayed. It's before the Last Supper. So now Jesus is teaching them the last things he wants to teach them before the cross. Chapter 13, he washes their feet. Chapter 14, he begins teaching about, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Then he gives us this metaphor in chapter 15. I am, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. And what's the gardener do? He tends to the vine. He prunes the vine. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes. Why? So that it will be even more fruitful. Because it is our, it is our purpose in life to glorify God by bearing spiritual fruit. That's, our, that's why we're here. Okay? Now, he's going to show you how that happens. This is how you do that. You are already clean because of the word I had spoken to you. Remain in me or abide in me. Okay, those remain and abide, same word. Abide in me, remain in me as I also remain in you. And then he goes back to the metaphor. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Remain connected. Abide in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain or abide in me. Watch this. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, including repentance. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Living a life of no regret glorifies God. 
As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Verse 15, I'm going to skip down to verse 16. You did not choose me. He's talking to his disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Why? So that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Back to 27. Okay, so you see it? How do I live a life with no regrets? I don't regret my sin. I repent of my sin. It's, it's straightforward. How do I repent? How do I do that? I, first of all, I need to believe that I'm connected to Jesus. I'm a branch. He is the vine I'm connected to. And if we're disconnected, I have no access to the source of the power I need to do what I need to do. This is why if you're not a follower of Christ, but you're trying to be a Christian, you're going to fail over and over and over. Because the fruit you're going to bear is going to be the equivalent of me going out there and cutting a branch off of one of these trees in the parking lot, bringing it in here and taping fruit to the tree and holding the branch out and going, look what we did. We have a branch that's got fruit on it. And you're going to go, no, we don't. That's fake. Because God didn't do it. And so we are the branch. He is the vine. We stay connected to him. And that empowers us to bear fruit that will last. That means beyond this life, because there's more than this life. This isn't all there is. There's the best is yet to come, and it's, it's there and forever. It's, and we're heading in that direction one way or the other. We're heading in that direction. And it'll be eternity with him or eternity apart from him. But we're going to be forever somewhere because God created us. Okay? And while he is sovereignly moving in our lives, you are responsible for your re- response. I can't explain how it all fits together, but Judas is responsible, I think. Peter is clearly responsible. One re- is they're both remorseful. They're both sorry, but they're not both repentant. And I think that's why Judas took his life. And we, we saw from, G- from Jesus in verse 24 of chapter 26, we see that he said, The Son of Man will go just as is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. That's got to be pretty bad because to not exist is horrible. So worse than that, better than that. So there you go. All right, let's, uh, let's, um, let's just read a little bit more and then we'll close. Verse 11, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, that would be Pilate, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He gives him the same answer he gave the high priest. You've said so. In other words, yeah, but not in so many words, not like you're thinking. He's basically trying to say, I am the Messiah. I am the king of the Jews. I am so much more than you can even imagine. But, uh, you know, you've said so. Okay. Jesus replied, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. He's not defending himself. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. First of all, their charges are false. Second of all, he's not trying to get out of this. He is headed to the cross on purpose. Let's not miss that. He is fully in control. And he's playing out Isaiah 53.7, which compares him, you know, calls, describes him metaphorically as the sheep before the sharer who doesn't speak. 
Now, it was the governor's custom, and this is going to be a picture of substitution, okay? Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, he's talking to the crowd, the religious leaders are there, he's in the court of his praetorium, so that would have been a corner of the temple grounds. And there's this big, basically, military compound, and there's a courtyard, and Pilate's there on his little throne. And uh, he says uh, to the crowd, which one, of you want, which one do you want me to release to you? And not all manuscripts say Jesus Barabbas, so I'm just going to say Barabbas. But Jesus Barabbas, so Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah. For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. Pilate knows the politics that's going on. He knows how these religious leaders are working. He, he's, he is not for them at all. He does not really want to cooperate. But he's also a politician, and he's got to deal with Rome. And he is not on good terms at this point in history with Rome. So he has to walk very carefully. In fact, he normally wouldn't be in Jerusalem, except that it was the Passover feast, the festival of unleavened bread, and he's supposed to be there because the crowds are like 10 times normal, and there's all kinds of potential for unrest. He has to be on top of things, and so he's there. Okay? So um, for the, he knew he was out of self-interest. They wanted to hand him over. Verse 19, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, which his, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Okay, so she's calling him innocent. Pilate doesn't think he's guilty. Okay, Judas, his betrayer, has said he's innocent. Later, he'll get sent to Herod, who will say, I can't find anything wrong with him. No one finds guilt except the religious leaders, and that's because they don't believe what's actually true. But the chief priests, the chief priest, this is verse 20, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who's called the Messiah, Pilate asked? Crucify him. The Greek is actually just crucify. That's all it is, one word. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they just shouted all the louder, crucify. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, of course, he doesn't need that. That's not good for him. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm, an inno I'm innocent, there's that word again, of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. Well, it is on them. And they actually will double down. All the people answered, his blood is on us and our children. I can't imagine. Then he released Barabbas to them, and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified, showing that, in fact, Pilate is responsible because it was under his authority that this was made possible. So I can say I'm not responsible. That doesn't change what's true. Now, all of that is to say Jesus died physically for, for Barabbas, his life for Barabbas. But that's a picture of what he does for every single one of us in our sin. He died in my place. I deserve to hang on the cross for my sins just for yesterday, not counting all the past and the future. Every one of us deserves to die on the cross for our sins, and Jesus took our place. What are you doing with what you have, what you call your life, that would at all indicate that you believe that and want to honor that? Think about it. In the last week, what have I said that has honored Christ for what he did for me? In the last week, think about what have I done in the last week. This is not to earn, right? This is a self-reflection question. Am I living a life that adds up to what I believe? 
Does my life, this is said another way, somebody else came up with this and I love it. Does my life demand a gospel explanation? The way that I live, the things that I say, the things I choose to do and not do, do they, is the only explanation for my life that I believe the gospel? And if it's not, then you need to, you need to ask the Lord to forgive you. You need to ask, you need to repent. Not just sit there and regret going, ah, oh, every time I come here I feel guilty. Well, the Lord's going to convict you of your sin. That's a mercy. But you don't have to live there. In fact, I don't want you to. I want you to leave your, your, your sins at the foot of the cross. Walk out of here guilt-free. No regrets. That's freedom. That's beautiful. And that's what Jesus died for. Let's pray. Lord, as we, as we think about this, as we think about our situation, our life, I imagine that we have regrets right now. Um, there's unrepentant sin, unrepentant sin in our hearts that maybe even now you're revealing for the first time that you want us to repent of right now. It could be an attitude. It could be like a spirit of criticism that you're always having, or it could be, it could be a lack of faith and not praying because I don't really believe God hears or answers my prayers, so I, why pray? Or it could be, uh, I don't care about my neighbors. No compassion, lack of compassion. I don't even know their names. Well, it doesn't matter. I don't really care about them anyway. There's so many things, Lord, that you could take us to Scripture and we would immediately find guilt and, and, and regret. But, Lord, over and over, you point us to the cross. And you point us to the cross to remind us that you've already taken care of our guilt if we will just believe and receive. You've already done what needs to be done. Our job is just to respond by grace through faith. Give us the grace. Give us the faith, Lord, and, and then give us the courage to do what is in our best interest in the first place. Forgive us for our sins as we have forgiven those who've sinned against us. Help us to remember that the fruit of repentance is forgiving others among other fruit help us to get there help us to remember to abide in christ remain connected to christ in jesus name we pray